Ezekiel chapter 45. I had one little second there that I thought, did I ever fin did I finish 44? I did. Okay. Just had, just had to ask myself that question. We were in 44 for quite a while. <laughs> but I think we finished. Ezekiel 45. Chapters 40 through 48 deal with the restoration of the, of, of the nation of Israel. In actuality, you can all go all the way back to chapter 36 as it prepares us for the birth of or the rebirth of Israel, uh, the restoration of the people of Israel. Then, of course, chapter 37 deals with the, uh, the rising up uh, of, the, uh, of the, the bones in the valley of, of, of dry bones. And once again, a nation is, is, um, uh, is revived. And uh, of course, looking back in time, we realize that that would have been uh, really significant to 1948 and the rebirth of the state of Israel. Because Israel has got to be in the land as far as Bible prophecy is concerned. There's no Bible prophecy without Israel. Just, you know, if, if there isn't an Israel, then there is no Bible prophecy. And uh, it's sad to think that there are people today who do not look at Israel as being uh, the rebirth of, of, of the biblical nation of Israel, which, uh, again, if, uh, to be able to hold on to their own particular kinds of theologies as far as last days are concerned, uh, you take Israel out of the picture, you really don't have a last days theology. You don't really have an eschatology that's worth any, uh, 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 is worth anything at all. So Israel has got to be in the land. And what has God done, if we look at all of the prophets, especially as Isaiah and, and Jeremiah, but all of the, the Old Testament prophets, when you look at what they have said about God and restoring the land of Israel, taking a desolate land and making it uh, fruitful again, those of you that have been with us to Israel know that that's a reality. You, you see the land that was once just a bunch of desert, marshland, rock, now blooming. And for many years now, since 1948, Israel has, has, has grown in that, in that sense to, to be one of the great producers of some of the best uh, <clears throat> vegetation, uh, fruits and vegetables uh, worldwide, as well as uh, uh, flowers and uh, you name it. But now they're even more uh, prominent in, in the area of, uh, uh, of computers and uh, technology, especially many of the technologies that we see uh, around the world today. Uh, the cell phones, by the way, that we have, uh, we, can, we can thank the, the Israeli um, uh, scientists that put together all of these things uh, to, to make uh, what, what has become for us just something we take for granted. But uh, we didn't have that a few years ago. Much of that came from Israel. So again, this is, uh, and, and it doesn't mean that the nation of Israel today is uh, all of a sudden now uh, blessed spiritually because many of them are not uh, really seeing things yet. I mean, they still are having a struggle with the Lord, but that's okay. The Lord didn't say they had to be saved to be in the land. He just says, I'm going to put them in the land again. And eventually there, they're going to see their Messiah. And see, that's the thing. They are going to be in the land when Jesus comes back. And you read the book of Zechariah and you realize that uh, they're going to see him and they're going to see him who, who was pierced, which says a whole lot, doesn't it? That's Old Testament. And they're going to realize that their Messiah, they had rejected as a people for 2,000 years. But that Messiah, his name is Yeshua, Jesus and they will weep 
And the book of Revelation in chapter 1 speaks of that as well. So these are things that are happening, are preparing to happen. They're being prepared to happen. And we can give thanks to the Lord that God's word is true from Genesis to Revelation. Ezekiel 45. We've looked at the work of the priests and the divisions of the Levites and the, the priests of Zadok. Uh, these are what we've been looking at over the last few weeks uh, in chapter 44, but now we arrive here at verse 1 of chapter 45. Let's read it, and it deals with the land and the, the portions of the land and where they're going. Moreover, when you shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an oblation unto the Lord, or an offering unto the Lord, a holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of five and twenty thousand reeds, which is twenty-five thousand reeds, and the breadth shall be ten thousand. So the length and the width. And this shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. Uh, notice the emphasis on the word holy, set apart, sanctified. Of this there shall be the, uh, for the sanctuary five hundred in length, with 500 in breadth, square round, round about. The words in length and in breadth are in italics, which means that they're, they're not in the Hebrew, but they're implied here in, in the English and in other languages. And so we don't know yet, we'll talk about it, whether they're reeds, because back in verse one, reeds are mentioned, and that's also in italics. So it just says really, literally, the length of five and 20,000, the breadth 10,000. Uh, and so we'll, we'll, uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But notice verse two of this, there shall be for the sanctuary 500 in length with 500 in breadth square round about and 50 cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. The cubits is in the, in the text here, here. And of this measure shalt thou measure the length of five and 20,000 and the breadth of 10,000 and in it shall be the sanctuary in the most holy place. So there's a lot of measurements going on as far as the land is concerned where the temple is going to be. Now remember that we talked about the fact that there is a, um, a change in topography when Jesus places his feet on the Mount of Olives and everything begins to change. The, the valley before him begins to open up uh, everything is changing. So something is happening overall when Jesus arrives in the city of Jerusalem. Verse 5, And the five and twenty thousand of length and the ten thousand of breadth shall also the Levites, the ministers of the house, have for themselves for a possession for twenty chambers. So those numbers also apply to what's going to be given to the Levites. So you'll know, and we'll get to that in a moment. So we've now come to this section of Ezekiel's prophecy about the Messianic temple that pertains to the land of Israel in the millennial kingdom and how it will be divided during that age. Now, one section assigned to the Lord himself, another to the prince. Remember, we talked about the prince early on in chapter 44. And then one to each of the 12 tribes. So the first assignments were drawn by lots, and we're talking about going all the way back to the time of Joshua. But the first assignments were drawn by lots cast by Joshua, Eleazar the high priest, and one of each tribe, as each was given a portion of the promised land after the conquest of Canaan. Now I'm giving you this as a point of comparison and contrast. So there was a land given unto the people, and God divided the land for them. Numbers 26, verses 52 through 56. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, Unto these the land shall be divided for an inheritance according to the number of names. To many thou shalt give the more inheritance, and to few thou shalt give the less inheritance. So the tribes that had the most would get more land. It was only fair in that particular sense. Those who had less in their tribes would have a little bit less of the, of the land. But to everyone shall his inheritance be given according to those that were numbered of him. Notwithstanding, the land shall be divided by lot. According to the names of the tribes of their fathers, they shall inherit. According to the lot shall the possession thereof be divided 
between many and few. So things were chosen by lot. Now that's an important thing to understand. Even though we're not going to go into any detail about lots, I mean, you know, we, we think about lots being cast. What is a lot? You know, is it, is it like a dice <laughs> or, or whatever, or some kind of uh, stones that were used, white stones, black stones, and, you know, we could, we could spend some time on that. But other than that, we're not dealing with something that has to do with, with gambling. I'll, I'll talk about that in just a moment. But in Numbers 34, just getting back to the way things were done back in the time of Moses, uh, you'll find a list of names in Numbers 34, verses 60 through 29. We don't need to read it. It's a long passage. But you'll find a list of names of, of the men from each tribe that were chosen to divide the land according to the Lord's command. Now, I, now when I say divide the land, I'm, I'm saying divide the land according to God's command, not according to man. Because today, man is trying to divide the land for themselves. Man is trying to tell Israel what they can have and what they can't have. What, they, what, they're, what they're running into a problem with is that Israel doesn't belong to man. Israel belongs to the Lord. So all the things that are going on in the United Nations and, and you know, through all of these uh, uh, na uh, nations that are trying to you know, uh, bring some peace and diplomacy to the Middle East uh, are, are all doing it without any wisdom and, and knowledge. In fact, they're doing it in ignorance. And it's not, you know, the situation is not getting any better as far as peace is concerned. Because the Palestinians, as far as we know, as far as we see them today, as well as many in, in the uh, Arab nations that are staunch enemies of Israel, They'll never agree to anything uh, that pertains to giving Israel any land at all. In fact, in many Arab maps that are, that are drawn in, in the nations that surround from, you know, from um, Lebanon all the way around, <laughs> Lebanon, Syria, uh, not Jordan so much, but Lebanon and Syria and a few other nations surrounding there, uh, they, they don't even put Israel on the map. They, do, they don't exist. They don't exist to, the, to that mindset of people. So understand here that when God says, I'm, I want you to divide the land, it says, you, you, you know, we're going to put borders for each of the tribes. You take care of this land. This is your land, and, and you're, my, you're my inheritance, and I'm your inheritance. See? So now as for the millennial kingdom, now, you know, jump thousands of years to the future. Uh, as for the millennial kingdom and the apportioning of the land here that will follow, especially in chapter 47, there's one thing that needs to be noted, and that is that the descriptions found in our text here in chapter 45 don't actually coincide with any division of the land in the past. And the amount of detail does, in fact, give a good argument for a literal fulfillment in the future. Because all of the numbers are, that are being given have, have some significance, certainly to God and to the people in the time of the millennium, but so it's, it's, it's a different thing. So to say that this is just uh, uh, some kind of a spiritual or uh, you know, metaphoric thing that's happening, no, no, it isn't. God has reasons why he's numbering these things and the way he wants it when Christ comes. Let's go back to verse 1 for just a moment, Ezekiel 45. Moreover, when you shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an oblation unto the Lord. A holy portion of the land. The length shall be the length of five and twenty thousand reeds, and the breadth shall be ten thousand. Now, various translations have different uh, designations, whether it's cubits or rods in some of the modern translations. King James puts in reeds to, uh, to tie it in with what we've seen already in chapter 42. I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. I keep saying I'm going to get to it. I'm going to get to it, honestly. I'm going to get to it. Uh, and the bread shall be 10,000. Uh, the implication is reeds. And this shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. It'll be set apart properly by God uh, in each of these areas. And when the time comes, the Israelites, and we can call them Israelites again, they were Israelites when they were given the land because of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
uh, there'll be Israelites again. I mean, today we call them Israelis, but uh, uh, they will be called Israelites again. Anyway, we'll give the Israelites, we'll be, they'll be able to divide the land by lot again, it says. But literally here, the lot is an assignment or an allotment. It's an assignment or an allotment, but the Lord himself will control the outcome. The fact of the matter is, with every lot cast before God, it is God who is in control. It is of utmost importance that we know a little bit about that understanding of lots. Because it's easy to consider lots as some sort of, of gamble, you know. Well, you know, we'll throw the dice and see what comes up, you know. You know, all right. 7-Eleven, 7-Eleven, you know, that's... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I just heard that somewhere, you know, okay. <laughs> but it's not, it's not that. I want you to take notice of something. Proverbs 16.33. Turn to Proverbs 16.33. Don't forget the Urim and the Thummim. We, we didn't talk about that earlier, but that, that, was, uh, that was where the lots were, were hidden, you know. Behind the Urim and Thummim. I mean, that's, this still comes back to God, doesn't it? Now notice what it says. A lot is cast into the lap. But the whole disposing thereof is of the Lord. Now what does that mean? The whole disposing, the word for disposing there in the Hebrew is mishpat. Mishpat. And, and it means decision or judgment. So the whole decision or the judgment, if a lot is cast, still is of the Lord. The decision, the judgment is of the Lord. So understand when God said divide the land and this was done by lot, it was done by his assignment and his allotment, not the people's allotments. So it's simply to be understood that this land belonged to the Lord. The land belonged to the Lord. Remember, he was the, he was the Israelites' inheritance. I'm your inheritance, he said. So the land is, is, it belongs to the Lord, but he will allow them to occupy it as he specifies. So one part of the land was to be set aside. And that part of the land was to be set aside under that particular banner of holiness. Holy is the word that is used. Holy, a holy portion. We see that phrase used here in the text. This shall be holy. It shall be set apart. And don't forget this. It is always anything set apart for holiness is set apart for the Lord's use. It is set apart for holy purposes. And don't forget that it isn't just things that are set apart. It isn't just land that is set apart. It isn't just vessels that are set apart. We are to be holy as God is holy. It says that in the book of Leviticus, be ye holy as I am holy, or for I am holy. And Peter repeats that in the book of 1 Peter when he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. If God is holy, if God is set apart, we are to be set apart. It, just, it goes without saying. We, we, we can't be a believer from the sidelines. We can't be a believer in the stands. We're, we're on the playing field now, folks. We're on the playing field of life. We've made a commitment to Christ. This is no longer us looking at things and trying to decide whether we want to be a, this or that or not. If we gave our hearts to Jesus Christ, then we belong to him. Then we are to be holy and set apart for the work that he gives each and every one of us to do. So keep, keep that in mind. We'll come back to that in a moment. The dimensions and the measurements given are not clear as to the standard. It's not clear in what we're reading, but in other words, what, you know, as I said earlier, was it cubits or reeds? Was it cubits or rods? And don't forget that a cubit, there was, there was a cubit, about 18 inches. There was a long cubit, about 24 inches. And then there was a reed. And what was the reed, you remember? Ten and a half feet. 
So that's a little bit bigger than a qubit. So which is the land measured by? The best understanding for now would be the standard given to Ezekiel by the Lord in chapter 42, because these are very clear. It's a standard that, that sta you know, God is, God is, is very economic in his, in his ways. You know, when he sets a standard for someone like Ezekiel, then it kind of stays that way throughout Ezekiel, unless he designates something a cubit. So we know that when we saw the measurements of the temple, there was the reed, and then there were certain things in the, in the area of the inner court that were measured by cubits alone. So there was reed and cubits, so there was distinctions. Here is the same way. Here it's, it's, we're given lengths, but then we're also told that cubits will be involved. So verse, let's, let's go back to Ezekiel 42, verse 15, because I want you to see this. <clears throat> Ezekiel 42, verse 15, it says, Now, when he had made an end of measuring the inner house, he brought me forth toward the gate. And by the way, who's, who he's talking about, of course, is that messenger of God, the angel. He brought me forth toward the gate whose prospect is toward the east and measured it round about. He measured the east side with the measuring reed, ten and a half feet. Five hundred reeds with the measuring reed round about. He measured the north side, 500 reeds, with a measuring reed round about. Now we're talking a lot, I mean, we're talking long measurements here. <clears throat> Excuse me. He measured the south side, 500 reeds, with a measuring reed. He turned about to the west side and measured 500 reeds with a measuring reed. He measured it by the four sides. It had a wall round about, 500 reeds long and 500 uh, broad to make a separation between the sanctuary and the profane place. What is the profane place? The common area, the common place. There's a holy place, there's a common place. So the only specified measurement in our text is in verse two, going back to chapter 45, where the cubit is mentioned clearly. The cubit is mentioned. And if converted properly then, if we convert these measurements properly, the dimensions given in verse one if it's reeds, if it is the rod, it would equal to 8.3 miles long, 25,000 reeds, 8.3 miles long, and 3.3 miles wide, 10,000 reeds. That's how big this section of land is. Eight miles long, 3.3 miles wide. And this land was considered to be holy within all its boundaries. If we go on and, and read verses 2 through 4, it says, Of this there shall be for the sanctuary, 500 in length. So remember the sanctuary being the temple, where the temple is going to sit in this area of land that has been allotted to the temple, to the priests, uh, the priests of Zadok, who are the ones that work in the inner temple. Of this there shall be for the sanctuary 500 in length with 500 in breadth, square round about, and 50 cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. At this point, we are looking at cubits because of the mention here in verse 2. And of this measure shalt thou measure the length of 5 and 20,000 and the breadth of 10,000, and in it shall be the sanctuary in the most holy place. The holy portion of the land shall be for the priests and the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto the Lord, and it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. So now, within this area mentioned was to be a space of 500 cubits square, 500 by 500 cubits square, which would equal about 833 feet by 833 feet. And this was the size, the size of the temple complex itself. Just go back to verse 20 of chapter 42, which we just read a little while ago. But as far as can be understood, the temple complex would be surrounded by an open space of 50 cubits, which is 83 feet, designated as a protective area to illustrate the holiness 
of the sanctuary area. And, and folks, don't forget that this is gonna be for the thousand year reign of Christ, which means it's on the earth. There will be people on the earth that are coming to worship in, in Jerusalem, and, but there's still people. This is not heaven. This is Christ reigning on the earth. So there has to be distinctions of places that are holy so people will know what is holy and what is not. So the most holy part of the land, which is where the sanctuary is, there is a protective area. Some people call it a green, uh, I forget what they call it, a green something, you know. But anyway, don't worry, it's not the Green Berets, it's just, you know, but, it's, but it is protective, okay? Anyway, it's the most holy part of the land. And the priests of Zadok would live in the land outside the open space around the temple complex within this larger area, within the larger area. Look at verse 5 once again. And the 5 and 20,000 of length and the 10,000 of breadth shall also the Levites, the ministers of the house, have for themselves for a possession for 20 chambers. So the Levitical priests would then occupy another large area beside the one described earlier. If you go forward to Ezekiel 48, verse 13, notice what it says. Ezekiel 48, 13. It says, and over against the border of the priests, which by the way, the border of priests, which, which would be in the north part above the, uh, the temple area. So over against the border of the priests, the Levites shall have five and 20,000 in length. Sound familiar? Five and 20,000, that's 25,000. It's gonna be the same length of land for the, for the priests. All the length shall be five and 20,000 and the breadth 10,000. So evidently this will be immediately to the north of the temple. And this is the difference, uh, this is the different, difference from the Mosaic system for the priests and Levites, because under that system, they live scattered throughout the land of Israel. It's a whole new thing for the Levites. It will be a whole new thing, because back in the Mosaic system, the time of Moses, they lived all throughout the land. They were sent to every tribe, and they were taken care of, you see, by the tribes as they worshiped the Lord and, and, uh, uh, and led them in, in the worship of the Lord. So that it was not at all in close proximity to the temple before. Now they're going to be close to the temple because they're right by where the priests that minister in the temple will be. And that's the way it's going to be in the millennial kingdom. Let's, let's read on verse 6 now. It says, And you shall appoint the possession of the city 5,000 broad and 5 and 20,000 long, over against the oblation of the holy portion, it shall be for the house, the whole house of Israel. And a portion shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion and of the possession of the city before the oblation of the holy portion and before the possession of the city from the west side westward and from the east side eastward. And the length shall be over against one of the portions from the west border unto the east border. So another portion of land, about 8.3 miles by 1.7 miles, seemingly to the, the immediate south, would contain the city of Jerusalem, and all of the Israelites would have access to it. Uh, at this point, we, there should be a, a chart that I want to show you all. I used to have a, a pointer here. Let's see if I have a pointer. No, that's not it. Yeah, maybe it is. Yeah, okay. There it is. I'll move this over here so I can talk and kind of look at y'all if I can. Okay, so here's the land allotment uh, that we'll talk about later, chapter 47 and all. But there, this is the portion that we're looking at here. Y'all see that? I wish I could jump over there and do this and that. But right here? Y'all see it? Y'all can see it? All right. So... The P on the outsides here designate the prince's portion, which we'll talk about later. The L are the Levite's portion. Now don't forget, this is miles. We're not talking feet 
We're talking miles here, okay? So the, uh, the X is the area for the food. The C is the city of Jerusalem in the south. The S is the sanctuary, right? It's pointing to the sanctuary. That little spot there, that's where the sanctuary is. And the Z is the priests of Zadok. This is where they're going to be. It's probably the best rendition of, of this, uh, of what we've been reading so far. So right there, uh, we'll concern ourselves with the, uh, with the tribes later. But uh, I, I just wanted you all to see that uh, so you get an idea of, of, that's a lot of land, okay? We're not talking just about what you see when you go to, to Jerusalem and, and you look at the, the, the walled city, the old walled city, and say, wow, that's beautiful. And, well, you know, it kind of is beautiful, except for, you know, uh, you know, what's on the Temple Mount. But, but the fact of the matter is, we're talking about an extended area that uh, God is, 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 is allotting to the priest. It's all going to be different. I mean, it's not even the topography is going to be like we see it today. That's all going to change. The whole structure that, that the sanctuary is going to be on, or, or the whole foundation, I should say, that the structure is going to be on is going to be practically, I mean, just flat on top of a mountain. The highest place is going to be the sanctuary. The highest place. Today there are hills. You can go to Israel and you see there are hills they look down into the Temple Mount. But that's not the way it's going to be when Jesus steps on the Mount of Olives and everything changes. And we're going to talk a little bit more about all of that, all of those changes because we're going to have to bring in a few verses from uh, the book of uh, Zechariah. Uh, there's a couple of other places that actually talk about those particular changes. So we'll, we'll get to those things as we're getting near the end of, of, of Ezekiel. So Ezekiel would later clarify that the city itself would occupy the center of this portion land. And the city lands would flank it on the east and west, as you've seen here. Now, if you'll go back to Ezekiel 48, just go all the way to the last book or the last chapter of the book. Ezekiel 48, verse 15. I want to read a, a few portions of this. It doesn't mean we're not going to study it when we get there, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we're just looking at the tie-ins to chapter 45. But Ezekiel 48 verse 15 says, And the 5,000 that are left in the breadth over against the 5 and 20,000, which we just read about earlier, shall be a profane place for the city. Now remember the word profane here just means common. So here it is a common place for the city for dwelling and for suburbs. People got to live in Jerusalem. They got to live somewhere. So that's what's being set apart. And the city shall be in the midst thereof. Jump down to verse 17. And the suburbs of the city shall be toward the north 250 and toward the south 250 and toward the east 250 and toward the west 250. And the residue in length over against the oblation of the holy portion shall be 10,000 eastward and by the way, don't get confused by all of this, because, man, this, we still got a few, a few days before it happens, okay? So when it happens, we'll know even better what's going to, what's, what all the measurements are going to be all about. And it shall be over against the oblation of the holy portion, and the increase thereof shall be for food unto them that serve the city. And they that serve the city shall serve it out of all the tribes of Israel. So that gives you then a little picture of what we saw earlier, how the food and the portions of that that were brought into that is going to serve the city of Jerusalem. So now the prince mentioned in chapter 44, and we, we've got more to talk about the prince later, but right now just mention him. Remember, people think it either is Jesus, which I don't believe it is. Some believe it's going to be a resurrected David, but I don't believe that what it is either. I mean, I'm just giving my opinion right now. Uh, and, or it's going to be somebody that is in the line of David uh, and of course uh, he is allowed to have children, family, and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, we talked about that a few weeks ago. But we'll come back to him because we, there are some things we need to talk about later. 
But the prince that is mentioned in chapter 44 will also receive a special land allotment, as we saw in the picture, uh, to the west and to the east of the city portions and the holy areas occupied by the priests of Zadok and the Levites. That is found in verses 21 and 22 of Ezekiel 48. And the residue shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other of the holy oblation, which of course at this point now the holy oblation would be the place of the holy offering, and of the possession of the city over against the five and twenty thousand of the oblation toward the east border, and westward over against the five and twenty thousand toward the west border, over against the portions for the prince, and it shall be the holy oblation, and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the midst thereof. Do you get a picture now of why this is literal? That it isn't just some kind of a metaphor or analogy of something or, or just some kind of a spiritualizing of things. That God really intends for us to understand there is going to be a place in Israel, in Jerusalem, in the holy city where there will be a millennial kingdom, uh, a millennial temple I should say, a messianic temple and offerings will be given again. Uh, because why go into such detail? Why go into such detail? It is important that for, the, for the Lord, for us. It is, it is important from the Lord to us that we realize there's something to this that is going to happen. It is also encouraging our hearts to be hopeful that everything that God has said will come to pass. That's another reason why we need to understand this in that manner. Whether we understand fully all the lengths and measurements, oh, uh, it drive you crazy if you try to figure it all out. Verse 22, moreover from the possession of the Levites and from the possession of the city being in the midst of that which is the princes between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall be for the prince. So the only significance here is that in times past, the kings of Israel had no specific designated area in which they live except for the royal palaces. Now they could put those wherever they wanted to. So they weren't designated. But here, it's, it's a lot different. And, and by, back then, those were much smaller than what has come for the prince now. The prince has a lot of land on either side of the, on either side of the, of the holy place. Okay, let's get back to our text. Last verse that we're going to look at tonight and begin to kind of wind the, some things down. In the land shall be his possession in Israel. And my princes shall no more oppress my people. Now, this is leading into the next section of chapter, 20, of chapter 45, which we're going to deal with more next week. So just keep this in mind. My princes shall no more oppress my people, and the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribes. So the rest of the promised land would be the portion of the other Israelites. You notice the names that you saw in the, in the chart. The names going north and the names going south. Not many going south, but many going north. All of that is going to be allotted to each and every tribe. And we will have to talk about the tribes of then and the tribes of the past because they're going to be a little different in, in a sense. But uh, it would it would, all, the entire allotment itself would contribute to the equitable governing of the nation of Israel and would discourage any rulers from bringing any oppression upon the people of the land. So just as there are rulers of each tribe, they have to submit themselves to the Messiah. They have to submit themselves to the governance of the Messiah, not the governing of, the, their, own, of their own selves. You know, in other words, Jesus is, Jesus is king. Jesus is king. That's a good thing, isn't it? We're looking at the world today, and everybody wants to be king. But there's only one king. And he's the one that came to die on our behalf. He's the one who shed his blood for us. He's the one who gave his life and has taken it back again. And is coming again. So all of these things are, are going to be significant in the millennial kingdom. And so setting aside the land for the Lord reminds us of something. It reminds us that wherever the Lord is, wherever the Lord is, it is holy ground. Wherever the Lord is, it is holy ground. 
Now, that can become a very awesome thought. Think of Moses out in the desert, tending his father-in-law's sheep. Counting sheep, I guess, when he's falling asleep. Counting sheep. And then all of a sudden he sees this burning bush. But it's not, the bush is not being consumed, but he sees the fire of the bush. And he goes to check it out. And he walks into that area where that bush is. And a voice comes out of that burning bush that tells him, take your shoes off for the ground upon which you walk is holy. And I, and I wonder why it is that that, that particular thought is, is not kept at the forefront of our lives as believers in Jesus Christ. That wherever God is, is holy ground. Now, that doesn't mean I want you to go out there, you know, sin chancla, you know, and then walk around without any shoes, you know, I'm not telling you that. But, but the point is that we, we sometimes look at that story like some people look at the, the Ark of Noah as if it's just only a child's tale. No, it was serious for God to tell Moses, this is holy ground where I am. Moses spent so much time with the Lord when they went to Sinai, and he, and he spent time with the Lord, with the Lord so much so that the glory of the Lord seemed to just be radiating from Moses. It wears away because Moses was a sinner; he was a human being. It wore away. He kept a, you know, he kept a cover over his head. You know, he didn't want everybody to think that he'd gone away. <laughs> ah, he got a little tricky. But every day, we are in the presence of the glory of God. Every day. And every day, the glory of the Lord should shine forth from every believer. You know, while church buildings should, should be dedicated wholly and completely to the Lord for his worship and his purposes, as we did 14 years ago, we were so blessed by the Lord with this building. We dedicated it completely and totally to the Lord for his worship, for his purposes, for the teaching and the preaching of his word, for the praise and the glory of his glorious name. There's a sense of certain respect to be shown in the house of God. Consider, if you will, Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13. And this is really important because remember now, Jesus is uh, in the presence of, of a temple that was Herod's temple. Uh, Herod wasn't a true believer, but Herod was one who truly believed in his architectural savvy and, and, and uh, you know, wanted this to be one of the most magnificent places in all the earth. Jesus knew that the, that the priests and the scribes and the Pharisees and, 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 and everyone in the, in the religious world of, of Israel at the time were, were hypocrites. Most of them, not all of them, but most of them. And yet, listen to what Jesus said. In verse 12, well, we'll see what he says in verse 13, but verse, beginning in verse 12, it says, Jesus went into the temple of God. Matthew calls it the temple of God. And cast out all them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves, probably at exorbitant prices to the poor people. The poor people couldn't afford a sheep, they could afford a dove, they probably took them for more money than they were worth. 
And he said unto them, it is written, my house. Now, is it that building? Or was it where the building was? Because remember, his father had commanded David, and Solomon, of course, would be the one to build the temple. But it had to be in Zion, in the city of David, in the place that God said was his holy mountain. And he says, my house shall be called the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. So again, remember, this was Herod's temple. And yet Jesus still considered it a holy place where the Lord God of Israel wanted his temple to be built. But I want you to take note of the spiritual implications of all of this. If you, if you look at some of the things that Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, who had been at one time a Pharisee of the Pharisees, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, he even knew that he was from the tribe of Benjamin, of all things. 1 Corinthians 3, verses 16 and 17. Paul says, know ye not that ye, and he's speaking of the whole church, he says, you are the church, you are the body of believers. Know ye not that ye are the temple of God? And that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. Well, that, that could scare just about anybody at least in, in, in the sense of a fear and reverence of God, it should. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, holy, which temple ye are. You are the temple of God. You go three chapters later, 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 and 20. I like the first question he asks. What? <laughs> Just, what? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you? Don't you know this? I just told you that three chapters ago. Of course, he didn't write in chapters, but... But he already told him that. Which you have of God and you are not your own. Folks, what are we doing to these bodies sometimes? Does it belong to us? Individually, I mean, our, our own individual bodies that we would just do whatever we want to? That's okay, it's all right, the Lord doesn't, uh, no. It seems to me that he cares what we do. You are not your own. For you are bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body, in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Your body and your spirit belong to Him. He bought you. He bought me. He bought us. Go to the next book, 2 Corinthians. By the way, you, you, you come to realize that he speaks about another letter. So some people believe that this is actually the third letter to the Corinthians, but the second one did, did not become canon in, uh, script, uh, part of the canon of Scripture. So 1 Corinthians was one letter. There may have been one in between, and then this is the second letter. But in, verse, in chapter 6, verse 16, it says, In what agreement... What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So there were some problems in the church, even in Corinth, and in other churches as well. If you read uh, Revelation 2 and 3 and the seven churches that uh, Jesus addresses, there was some idol worship going on. He says, what, what, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For ye are the temple of the living God. See, what other idols are, are doing, they're just not, they're not, they're dead gods. 
dead in the sense that they're not alive as the one true God. I, I, I really, one of these days I really want to talk a, a little bit about the fact that I don't, I don't fully believe, I don't fully believe that the, that the only idols that the scriptures talk about are the ones that man carves out of wood and stone and things. They had to have seen things. That's why Genesis chapter 6 is, is a powerful passage as to why God had to destroy the whole world. All right, so one of these days we want to talk about, you guys, you guys might even think I'm crazy, but I'm not. But, but the, the, you know, the, think about the mythologies of Greece, you know, the Greek mythologies and all of the different sorts of gods, because that, that's what they are. Look at all the Marvel comic movies that are coming out about gods, 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 man's gods. It's the reason why God had to destroy the world. But I'm not going to get into all the detail right now. All I'm telling you is there's only one true living God, and that's our God. But all the other gods, I mean, they had to come from somewhere. They had to be seen in some form or fashion. So let's go on. So the people that are listening and live stream don't think I'm crazy. So as God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. The temple of the living God, that's who you are. And then consider what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 17 through 22. When he says to that church, and now what he's speaking about here is the bringing together of Jew and Gentile. The bringing together of, of, of those who are near to God in the sense of being the Jews who are the chosen people and the Gentiles who were considered really far from God. So with that in mind, notice what it says in verse 17. And, and he came and he preached peace to you which were afar off, Gentiles, and to them that were nigh or near, that would be the Jews. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, have access by one spirit unto the Father. What by, the, by the way, let me ask you this question. What happens when Jew and Gentile come to Jesus Christ? First of all, we become one, Right? Now you you can you can say you're you, you know you can say you're you're still Jewish that's that's okay but and you believe you're a Jewish believer in, in Jesus Christ and a Gentile now has been grafted in to uh, you know the the to the the divine which is Jesus Himself who was Jewish so now we're grafted in. And you know what? We find out that there is a new designation. And that is the church of the living God. You become the church. You want to call yourself a Gentile, that's okay. But it's not all that okay because the fact of the matter is there's Jews mentioned, there's Gentiles, and then there is the church of the living God. There's, a, there's a, another designation. We are grafted in. We are believers in Jesus Christ. You know. We're no longer what we were before. So, here it is. Came and preached peace to you which were far off, for through him both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now, therefore you are no more strangers and foreigners as Gentiles, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. So now you're in a new household. And are built, notice, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the, the word of God, Old and New Testament, Old and New Covenant, but one new covenant in Jesus Christ, the cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto a holy temple in the Lord. Emphasis on holy, set apart, sanctified in whom you also are builded together for a habitation of God through the spirit you've been brought together as one new material because before Christ Jew and Gentile just didn't mix because of Jesus we become stronger. 
and the building is fit together by God himself. And then if you will, turn to Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 3, 1 through 6. Wherefore, and I believe it was Paul who wrote the book of Hebrews, so he says, Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, Messiah Yeshua, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in all his house. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who has builded the house hath more honor than the house. Who built the house? Messiah. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But notice verse 6. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house we are. Whose house we are. If we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Hold fast the confidence. Hold fast your faith and your rejoicing in the hope that is firm unto the end. What is our hope? The blessed hope. Who is the blessed hope? Jesus is our blessed hope. Who is the hope of glory? Jesus is our hope of glory. Lastly, but you were glad to hear that. Lastly, 1 Peter 2, verses 1 through 5. Wherefore, laying aside all malice. Now, why would Peter say that to the church? Because there was some malice going on in the church. Guile, deception, hypocrisies, envies, and all evil speakings. He says, lay aside, laying aside all malice and all guile and hypocrisies and envies or envies and all evil speakings. So lay those things aside as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. If so be, you have tasted that the Lord is gracious to whom coming as unto a living stone disallowed indeed by men but chosen of God and precious ye also, notice this, ye also as living stones are, by the way, not rolling stones, Living stones, all right, are built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. So we are a spiritual house. And how important it is for us to understand that wherever God is, is holy ground. Now, from this perspective, wherever we go, when Christ who is in us and with us and his spirit who is in us and with us, wherever we go, that's holy ground. Not because of us, but because of him who loved us and gave himself for us and is now in us to lead us, to guide us into all of his truth. So let's meditate upon that this week, rest of this week. The importance of where we are as being a holy place 
Not as if to say, you know, everything we do now, you know, we have to put our hands like this. And, no, we live our lives. God knows us. He knows us inside and out. And He knows when we truly love Him. And He knows when we truly want to serve Him. So let that be what we do. Let's just come to Him and say, Lord, each and every day, Make me to realize how holy it is where I am with you. And I might trust you for the things that I do, for the things that I say, for even the things that I look at, for even the things that I see, for even the things that I think. Because now I realize where I am is holy ground because of you.